Hello, this is Jason Gewertz, and welcome to another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Our guest today is Carlos Silva, the Chief Executive Officer of World Team Tennis, which recently completed their 45th and most unusual season at the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia, an event that was held with fans in attendance. We'll be talking about how the Professional Tennis League pulled off its season and what precautions they put in place for a successful event. But before we begin, this podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 20 Virtual will be brought to you from Houston, October 19th through the 22nd, 2020. This year's conference will be a virtual experience and will feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's SportsLink program, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. The conference will also feature presentations from 48 event organizers at all levels of sports, offering updates on their organizations and events. For more details on everything we have planned online at Teams this year, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the discussion. World Team Tennis has been around for years and has certainly had to adapt over that time as franchises have come and gone. Co-founded by tennis legend Billie Jean King, the league brings together men and women who compete on the same team, each based in a different city of the country. Unlike traditional tennis, where players will play the same opponents until one is victorious, in World Team Tennis, a full match consists of men's singles, women's singles, men's doubles, women's doubles, and a mixed doubles match with the results of each compiled to determine the winning team. In a normal year, those matches are played in home markets across the summer. But in 2020, with the COVID-19 pandemic still having an impact on sports at all levels, uh, games in what was going to be nine home markets just weren't going to happen. That left Carlos Silva and the leadership at World Team Tennis with some choices. Uh, The outcomes of those choices were significant for Silva, but were ones that he was perhaps uniquely suited to help achieve. Silva joined the league in 2019 after five years at the Professional Fighters League and the World Series of Fighting, both mixed martial arts organizations. Prior to that, his sports career included an emphasis on television and entertainment, including nearly five years as president of Universal Sports and seven years as senior vice president with AOL Sports. Tennis, though, was in his background as well, having competed in college and having made an effort himself to turn professional. But his media background uh, helped him ink a new deal last year for World Team Tennis with CBS Sports for distribution of the league's events. And when the season was forced to be held in one location this year, the end result was a decision to play matches entirely at the tennis complex at the Greenbrier Resort in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, a made-for-TV environment that helped the league see its highest ratings in history. But it wasn't just a made-for-TV environment that caused the 45th season of World Team Tennis to be so successful. The league also became one of the first to welcome fans in the stands, up to 500 per session at the Greenbrier Stadium, which seats about 2,500. Just how World Team Tennis pulled that off and the lessons they learned are the focus of this discussion with Carlos Silva, who leaves the summer of 2020 poised for considerable growth ahead. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Carlos Silva, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Jason, thanks for having me. Great to be here. It is nice to connect with you and talk a little bit about World Team Tennis. I need to sort of start off with a confession, Carlos. I'm certainly familiar with the organization. I've seen uh, matches here and there on TV from time to time, but 
I was home the other weekend uh, with my son, who's 10 years old. We were kind of seeing what sports were on, and we caught some of your semifinals of this recently completed season, and it was really compelling. We, uh, you know, we sat and watched the whole thing, and, and he was like, what is this? And I tried to explain it to him. Um, it, you know, just a great product on, on television, and, you know, congratulations on having finished uh, what was a most unusual season. I just wanted to start off <laughs> by saying that right up front. Sure. No, thank you. Yeah, it was. I think a most unusual season's a fair a fair assessment for sure. But I'm glad. I'm more. Uh, I'm more happy to hear that your son uh, enjoyed it and and it, and he didn't know about it, but he quickly got into it because I I do think that uh, you know one of the strengths of world team tennis is uh, is our format, and I think it's fun. I think it's exciting. It's fast paced. It's uh, it's kind of all the things that we need in in sport right now. So. Uh, so I'm I'm really glad to hear that he had a good time watching the semifinals. I agree, and and I want to talk obviously details about how you pulled off your seasons. But let me start a little bit with you, Carlos. For those of our audience who may not be familiar with you, you're relatively new to world team tennis, but you've been around the sports industry for years. You spent years in MMA with the Professional Fighters League, and I know you were involved with the Universal Sports Network uh, before that. Longtime history in, in sports and entertainment, but I understand you've, you've got a tennis background as well. Didn't you play in college? I did, yeah. I played, uh, I played at Boston College, and then... Uh, and then after college, tried a summer on the on the satellite tour, trying to figure out if there, if there was any game there. And uh, in any case, I had a good time doing it. What was it about this job at, at World Team Tennis? You started last year as a new CEO. What was appealing about that, and and why did you take the job? Yeah, you know, good good question. Um, you know, I think some of it probably comes back to a little bit of your you know your original question. You know, tell me about tennis and. Uh, as you as you hear as you hear my dogs going crazy in the background, I don't know if you can pick that up on the mic. Yeah, he, he he's I, a fan I, too. It sounds like. Yeah, they're they're barking for us and cheering for us all the time. Um, <laughs> it's good to have some support on the podcast every exactly, once in a while. Exactly. Yeah, we need we need some fans on all everywhere we go, right? Yeah, I mean, for me, I've always had these opportunities to try and understand sort of how to take properties and grow them. And I, I think I've I've sort of gone back and forth in my career between big places and small places, and you know, sort of reinvigorating things and selling them to other entities. And tennis is so has been so important to me. I mean, I grew up playing. It it taught me so much. It you know, it taught me how to be in front of people. It taught me how to be on time. It taught me discipline. It taught me so many things that you know I still think about and are part of sort of my DNA. That when the opportunity came up with a, a great group of owners, of which I actually knew a few of them from actually growing up with one of them, it just seemed like a great opportunity for me to take all the things I had done in a sport that I love with a with a great you know board of directors and owners and and certainly knowing uh, knowing Billy Jean King a little bit from over the years and and worked a little bit with World Team Tennis and I knew Mark Ein here in, in Washington with the Washington Castles. Uh, I just decided, you know what? Sometimes you have to go with your gut, and um, and uh, you know, tennis was such an important part of you know my DNA that I said, you know, I'm going to put it all together, and I I jumped into the I jumped into the shallow pool. 
Well, before we even talk about this season that you just had, let me take you a step back to last season because it seemed like you were, uh, you know, the league was building some momentum here. You had a new multi-year deal with CBS for broadcast. You had two expansion teams last year. Why don't we jump back just briefly to last year to kind of set the stage on what's been happening with World Team Tennis. I know there have been ups and downs over the years uh, as far as franchises, but it, it seemed like things were on the upswing. Yeah, you know, uh, it's funny. 2019 seems like a long time ago, Jason. But uh, <laughs> it sure does. In, in the world that we live in now, which is so, it's you know, so true. But um, yeah, you know, look, we we had six when I joined. We had six teams. Uh, I think the league had kind of, you know, kind of stagnated a bit. It was a bit undercapitalized. We needed to sort of inject some new thinking into it. The the owners brought me on board. I brought upon uh, some staff that had been part of my teams over the years from from television networks to digital and certainly sports in general. And, you know, one of the first things that I felt we needed to do was expand because I really didn't think there was an opportunity to have a postseason when you only have six teams. Yeah, it's hard. And so, you know, immediately we started looking at expansion. We looked at doing that at the league level sort of um, taking a taking a page out of MLS and building the right kind of franchises uh, with the right kind of look and feel and support is something that the MLS did over the years. And then they found owners once those teams were up and running and healthy. And so we took the same approach. We, uh, we launched a team in Orlando at the USTA National Campus, and we launched a team in Las Vegas. And lo and behold, we had eight teams. And all of a sudden now we had a real reason to try and bring uh, a postseason together. And so we put that format together where the top four teams advancing from the regular season would go into a classic bracket, you know, number one seed versus the number four seed. And they'd advance to the finals to try and win the, the coveted King trophy. And I, you know, it worked well. We went to Las Vegas. I think Las Vegas gave the league a big feel. Uh, having a postseason in Las Vegas gave the, the league a big feel. CBS was a great partner. ESPN was a great partner in, in 2019. And I think it sort of set us up for doing bigger and better things in, in 2020 in spite of the pandemic. And I think we showed that in 2020, we expanded by another team in Chicago uh, and then had you know big numbers during the regular season on CBS and big numbers for the finals with over uh, over half a million viewers in the finals on average. But then we, we peaked at over, over a million a million one in the last 15 minutes during an awesome super tiebreaker at the end of the match. And, and so I think the growth, you know, the growth is there. The audience is there. I, I think the product is as good as it's ever been. And I thought the players this year, they were incredible. I mean, you could, especially, you know, you said you watched the semifinals with your son. I mean, the talent that was on the court during the semifinals, aside from just the entire season, but in those matches that you watch was, it was incredible. I mean, from, you know, how many Grand Slam champions were on those four teams that made the that made the the final four was really amazing. I just don't know that we've seen that in a long time in world team tennis. Probably going back to the Chris Everett, Jimmy Connors playing world team tennis time frame. Yeah. And so like anything when you see these players they compete so hard when they're playing their peers. You know, they just do. It's just the way athletes work. Yeah. And so 
I think we build off of that. And I think it was really a great thing in the pandemic, maybe a silver lining that we saw such big tennis from so many big names. Yeah. And if you want to see that passion for anyone who's listening to this, who didn't see your finals match, you alluded to it before with the super tiebreaker. Uh, it was about as compelling as, as sports get. And there was no doubt those players were invested in the outcome at the end of that match. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, that tiebreaker at the end of the match, which determined the entire season. I mean, I think the Chicago smash, I think they might have been up 5-3 in the breaker. And I think there was a point that Sloan won it at 4-3. And I mean, the amount of like fist pumping and let's go and energy that was out on the court and, you know, wanting to win the, the championship was was incredible. And and, you know, I mean, we saw an incredible point there at the end at six all, you know, the entire season comes down to one point because in the super tiebreaker, you don't have to win by two. And, you, you know, it's literally it was six, six. The next point wins. First one to seven wins the match, wins the championship. And as I like to say, Coco Vandeweghe hit a, you know, hit a walk off forehand <laughs> um, that, you know, was was mostly out, but just enough in because if it's in a little bit, it's in. Yeah. And um it really, you know, I you just don't see that often in sport. I put it right up there with Michael Jordan hitting a that last second push off, you know, jumper. Um, the Dodgers with a walk off home run with Kurt Gibson. You know, any of those moments, it it was there. And uh, and you know, like I said, over a million people saw it on on CBS, which was great. Yeah, well, that was the end of the season. Let me take you back to the beginning of the season. So this was a season, as we talked about at the very beginning, was unusual for, obviously, for a variety of reasons. Maybe the most of which was the entire uh, season was held in one venue at the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia. So, Carlos, walk me through how you landed on that venue for the event, uh, where else you were considering, and and what those discussions were like internally to uh, find a place you could even do this this year. Yeah, you know, if I take you back in time a little bit to sort of March and April, you know, the pandemic was really kind of just hitting, things were beginning to shut down. We kind of knew at that point that there was no chance we were going to be able to have nine teams in nine cities flying around. Like it just, it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. And, um, and so we began sort of our search and we thought probably the solution would be to bring all the teams together. We weren't sure at first. But that was kind of the working thesis as we as we started to do this. And um, and we started identifying places to do it at that time, sort of as we were marching through April and May, we wanted to make a, a decision by the end of May. I can't remember the date, but I want to say it was either the end of April or the beginning of May. The UFC had a fight in Jacksonville and yeah. they were really, um, to their credit, the first ones back. They tested, they did all the right things. And, uh, and so we, you know, having come from the fight business myself and having, you know, such respect for what the UFC has done, we actually booked the arena in Jacksonville as well. So we ended up, we ended up going and talking to them and saying, well, if they can do fights there, they clearly understand what to do. They understand security. We were putting our own testing protocols together, but we knew the venue could support us because they were all doing the right things inside of the pandemic. And so we, we booked the Jacksonville arena there. And that was one of our choices. And then we booked uh, La Costa where we had just done our all-star event out in California. We booked uh, the Orleans, which was in Las Vegas, which is where our Vegas rollers team plays. Mm -hmm. 
And then we also booked an arena in Austin, Texas, because Texas was another place that seemed to be opening up because we obviously weren't going to go anywhere that wasn't open. Right. And, um, and so uh, then sort of in the end, uh, West Virginia reached out to us and, and some of our colleagues knew some contacts at the Greenbrier, you know, Randy Walker and, and Ben Sterner and, and a few others. We, we did a call with them and West Virginia was also you know, kind of opening for business. You know, in the end, we sort of put all of the, the packages together. In the end, California fell out because the governor wouldn't really give us the, the approval to come yet because the state just wasn't ready. Right. So they were off the list. And in the end, the Greenbrier also said, you know, things are so good here in West Virginia. We think you could bring some fans to the matches, even if it's very limited, up to 500 fans a day in a 2,500-person stadium, so less than 20%. And we decided that uh, that we liked what we saw in West Virginia. We liked the low instance of COVID that was there. And so we, in the end, right around June 1st, made our final decision and decided to go to the Greenbrier. And I think I think it ended up being one of our smartest smartest and luckiest decisions, uh, especially in, in what sort of happened in the, in the weeks and months since then, yeah. you know, in Florida and Texas and some other locations where things have spiked again. And uh, we ended up having a very safe season. We had all all uh, 100% negative testing on the way while we were there from players, from staff, from production folks. So uh, it was a lot of hard work and credit goes to every single person that was part of the season. Carlos, tell me a bit about your testing procedures for the athletes that you had on site. How often did you test? Did you test it before they got there, while they were there? What What was your approach to it? You know, we, we put some different protocols together and worked through them with a number of um, experts. And then certainly we worked with the Greenbrier Medical Clinic, and they were very helpful as well. And, you know, the Greenbrier was opening for business. So, you know, we were all vested together in keeping everyone safe. But uh, ultimately, where we came down to the final procedures were the following. Everybody, players, coaches, staff, production people, Anyone coming to the Greenbrier had to test negative before they left their home camp. So that was step one. So that they had to do that within five days of leaving for the Greenbrier. They had to get a negative test and send it to us. The second test is when they arrived at the Greenbrier, they immediately couldn't enter the Greenbrier uh, until they went to the performance center where we had set up a clinic and you would go directly to the performance center upon arriving in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, and you would get tested. If you had if you had come with a negative test, which everybody needed to, then the only thing that we asked everyone to do was to social distance and wear a mask and um, and basically eat their meals in their room until that second test came back. That usually happened within 24 hours. Mm-hmm sometimes 36 hours. Once you got that second negative, then you were entered into the competition and you were, you know, in the quote bubble with us. And so that's really how everything began. That all was completed by July 12th, which was the first day of the season. When the season started, uh, everyone was asked to wear masks on their way to work. And that, you know, and that included players. So if a player was walking to the stadium or, or just sort of commuting, if you will, from the hotel to the stadium, which are on the same grounds, they were asked to wear a mask. Everybody did. 
And, um, and then everyone's temperature was checked every day upon entering the stadium. Out of curiosity, did you have any similar requirements for the fans that you were allowed to have there? Or what was their experience, if any, to be on the grounds in the stadium? Yeah, so for the fans, the fans, everyone that entered the Greenbrier grounds had to have their temperature checked before entering the grounds at the security gate. Mm-hmm. And then upon entering the stadium, every fan also had their temperature checked. And then fans were required to wear a mask walking around the stadium, you know, getting a beverage, going to the bathroom, finding their seat. Once they found their seat and they were sitting with their family and social distanced from other families, then they were allowed to take their mask off for the outdoor arena. Uh, For the indoor arena, which we did have to utilize a few times due to weather, everybody's staff and fans were required to wear a mask all the time. The only people without masks on in the indoor stadium was on the field of play, uh, the competitors that were playing in the match. Gotcha. And it looked like for your outdoor events, when we're just staying with spectators for a moment, you had uh, looked like every other row maybe tarped off just to maintain the distance. Was it general seating? Were, were you basically trusting groups of people that were together to just kind of stay together? Yeah. So what we did is in the lower bowl, uh, we had a, a sponsor, Chosen Foods, and Chosen Foods created seat. We created seat covers for them that were branded. And those seat covers uh, blocked every other row. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when you came into the stadium, an usher seated family members together. The lower, each lower bowl and upper bowl ticket was general admission. And so then you came in and you chose your seat. And then if you were sitting near a family that you didn't know, you had at least two seats or approximately six feet between you and another family. Mm -hmm. In the upper bowl, there was a lot more room. So we didn't have the seat covers and we generally didn't have many fans at all in the upper bowl because we only had uh, less than 500 a day. Right. And were these fans who just happened to be at the Greenbrier or were, was there evidence that people were coming there specifically just to watch the tennis? It was both. I think it, it built as the season progressed and people watched it on, on, uh, on network. We had people from Richmond and Charlottesville and Washington, D.C. and Pittsburgh and Charlotte, North Carolina and, and other places. And I was able to chat with many and, um, and uh, people didn't know when they'd be able to see great tennis. And with all the stars that we had, I think they, they got a very unique opportunity to see these great players in a, in a very intimate, small stadium, you know, socially distanced, which was great. You also have another built-in advantage just by the format that World Team Tennis has been using for a while. You've used the Hawkeye technology sort of as your line judging, as I understand it, for, for quite a while, which limits uh, further limits the number of staff, I guess, that have to be on site, if you will. Is that, am I reading too much into that or did that uh, play to your advantage? No, no, absolutely. Uh, we've used Hawkeye for a number of years now and, you know, especially this year and you, you know, you see Hawkeye now being used on the outer courts at the U S open. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great. Cause you don't have to have chair, you know, lines, lines, people down on the court. We wanted to limit everyone on the court. The only people allowed on the court during the match was the chair umpire. They were up in their chair six feet up in a chair um, and the two teams. And we also eliminated ball kids. And so each of the teammates ball kitted for each other, which really created a a great dynamic. So yeah, Hawkeye is a big piece of of keeping um, the court with less people, but it also is great because it does such a great job. And I think, you know, we saw that 
throughout the season, but you know, you saw it in the ultimate way with that last forehand by Coco that, you know, I think most people thought was out and Hawkeye, you know, replayed it and you saw that the ball was in by about a quarter of a ball. Yeah, for what it's worth, I thought it was out too when I watched that. <laughs> that would have been tough for any chair, you know, for any lines person to make that call. But uh Hawkeye Hawkeye made the call and you know no nobody argued with it and uh and the New York Empire won the championship over the Chicago Smash. We uh, alluded a little bit earlier to your TV ratings but they were particularly that last match I mean you had a couple of, of matches this year that set records but that one uh your highest rating I think in the history of world team tennis, right? Yeah, I mean 556,000 average viewers over the course of 3 hours but what was super exciting and it just shows you the power of that suspense of that last tiebreaker is over 1.1 million viewers in those last 15 minutes watching the end of the match. So that was really, really nice to see and a, and a great number for World Team Tennis. So we're going we're gonna to continue to build off of that. Well, let me ask you this, Carlos. Obviously, this is an unusual year for everyone in sports, your organization included. You had this interesting success, both on the court and and off, being at the Greenbrier in in one specific location. Is that possibly a model for you down the road? You you know, you're a a league with franchises in different cities, of course, that play in their home markets. But is there anything possibly to this uh, down the road, even once we get beyond uh, this uh, incredible uh, pandemic stage that we're in? You know, I think so. I mean, I, I think, again, I think another one of maybe the silver linings, it, it really created a great feel and, and more of a tournament feel, Grand Slam tournament feeling with so many great players coming to the court every day. Multiple matches, you know, morning session, afternoon session, evening session. And so I, I do think World Team Tennis will be forever changed. I, I don't yet know what that means, but we're working on it right now. I mean, there could be some traveling that is eliminated by bringing multiple teams together. There could be an East Coast, West Coast kind of a stand. And certainly, you know, the playoffs are set. You know, we've done the playoffs now two years, you know, one year in in Las Vegas in 2019 where the top four teams came together. And then this year with the top four teams being in Greenbrier. So we certainly know that that playoff piece works. And I think what we did during the regular season with all the teams together is going to give us some some interesting data on how we continue to build and grow the audience for the league. Yeah, and for cities that might be listening, Carlos, is there any talk of further expansion or what are your thoughts on what that might look like and and what ideally you're looking for if you were to continue to go into new markets? There absolutely is a lot of talk of expansion. I think this year, again, just raised the profile of the league. Uh, We've got a bunch of inbound. We had some inbound in Greenbrier from a number of different people in different cities. In fact, I even had a call today uh, in talking about uh, Nashville as a possible city too. So uh, I I do think we're going to look at all those possibilities. I like having nine teams, but I think having 10 teams or 12 teams is uh, is probably a, a little bit better a model. Uh, and also this year, there were so many players. We could have had more teams because there were more players that wanted to play than we had slots on teams. Mm-hmm. So I think those are all those are all good problems to have, and we're going to look at those you know very quickly because you know 2021 is only 11 months away. What are your thoughts uh, as we as we wrap up here, uh, Carlos? The, the U.S. Open, we alluded to that as well earlier. Of course, the USDA is going to try and make a go of it in New York, the Open, a slightly larger scale tournament than what you just uh, pulled off. But at, at the same time, you've gone through this experience. What are your thoughts about how they might be able to do what they're attempting to do in New York? 
you know, I, I look, I have positive, I have positive thoughts for everyone that's working hard to bring sport back, you know, not just tennis, but you know, just sport in general. I mean, it's, it's hard work. Unfortunately, this virus is, is tricky. And, and unfortunately, when one person gets it, it's, it's often easy for others to get it because sometimes the person that gets it doesn't even know they have it right. because they don't really feel sick. And certainly that's the case. So it seems that's the case for professional athletes because they're, they're some of the most fit people on the planet, if not the most fit people on the planet. And so I just think being diligent, sticking to your protocols, not bending for anyone, no matter how important they are, is so important. Uh, it's the only way to get through it. Didn't matter whether you are an owner, whether you are a legend, whether you are a cameraman, whether you are a coach, whether you are a staff member driving a golf cart around. Every single person went through the same procedures. And I think that's the, you know, that's the key to success. Um, I think the U.S. Open's got, you know, got a difficult problem, but we all have difficult problems. And I think they can, I think we showed that it can be solved. I mean, we did over 800 tests. I think it was 822 to be exact. And all of them came back negative. And, you know, uh, that's hard. That's just because of hard work and being very diligent around it. And I think if they, if anyone does that, I think they can be successful and we can, and we all want everyone to be successful to bring sport back. Right. For sure. And, you know, there's, there's something to it, Carlos, and that you were able to do that with the negative tests, of course, for your, for your athletes, but on the spectator front too, as you know, there haven't been too many organizations yet that have really tried to consistently bring in spectators uh, safely. So I think it's uh, to your credit as well, that you were able to be one of the first out there that was that was able to pull that off i think that's going to be one of the next waves here that that we'll look out for yeah for sure i you know that that does bring a different component in uh you know i think there you know the issues of of how many and also you just have to have everyone be diligent around knowing who's been tested and who hasn't because when you are in a in a stadium, um, even when you exit the stadium, where the fans go, where the players go, where the staff goes, hmm. and sort of not being with people that haven't been tested and staying six feet away and certainly wearing a mask and washing your hands. And so I think if all those things are in place, you can pull it off. You know, having the fans, I think, was really great. It was special. It wasn't many fans, but I think having them brought sport back in a great way. And I, I think we'll start to see it in other places. It's just, you know, unfortunately, when we went into the Greenbrier, I was hoping when we came out of the Greenbrier, things would be better. And, uh, you know, even during that month that we were there, it, it seemed like things got a little worse. Yeah. And so I, I just think for all these organizations, especially the U.S. Open, it, just staying light on your feet. And just understanding what's going on every single day is so important because things continue to change, as you know. Yep, unfortunately they do, and I, I think that's uh, that's solid advice for all sports event organizers at the moment. If you're not nimble and, and quick to pivot if you need to, you kind of need to be, it seems, uh, unfortunately at the moment. Well, uh, Carlos, I you know I appreciate your time and walking us through uh, how you did what you did. I think it's going to be very exciting to see where you go from here, especially hopefully in a time where things are more normal or anything that looks like they're more normal. Um, you've obviously got a lot of momentum off this season and, and last season. So congrats again to you and your team on that. And I uh, would love to stay in touch to see where world team tennis goes from here. Oh, happy to do it anytime, Jason. And, uh, 
thanks for thanks for spending some time with us and uh you know we love what what you guys are doing with the support of sport and trying to help bring it back too so anything we can do just let us know and uh thanks again appreciate that thanks carlos This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which also features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gewertz for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.